millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Welcome, everybody, to the Mariner's Mirror podcast, and today's fascinating topic, the Challenger Expedition. Now, I freely admit that the Challenger Expedition is not something I have come across in 25 years of being a professional historian. Quite how it has evaded me, I do not know. Nevertheless, I have been sufficiently inspired in recording this episode to dedicate some time towards it, and I promise that there will be some fascinating video material coming out, which you'll be able to see on the Mariner's Mirror podcast brilliant YouTube page. So make sure to check that out. I'm not entirely sure what to do yet. I'm toying with the idea of animating one of Challenger's amazing ship plans, which shows you how the vessel was converted into a mobile science laboratory. I've also been utterly enthralled by the sketches of the wild and weird animals they dredged up from the deep, and in particular in the stunning and also wild and weird images of rock nodules as seen through microscopes. I also now know what a cosmic spherule is, which has greatly improved my life, though it's very difficult to pronounce. Well, what, oh what, could possibly have created all of this? Well, on this very day in history, the 7th of December 1872, the Challenger expedition set sail from Sheerness. Its purpose was conceived just two years earlier in 1870 by Charles Wyville Thompson, Professor of Natural History at Edinburgh University, who had managed to persuade the Royal Society Society of London to ask the government to furnish one of Her Majesty's ships for a prolonged voyage of exploration across the oceans of the globe. A voyage of deep sea exploration, unique for its scale of ambition and scope. It was made possible by extraordinary technological and scientific developments, as well as by international cooperation on an unprecedented scale, and also cooperation between civilians and naval personnel. Their job? To do nothing less than map the ocean floor and search for life in the abyss. To find out more about this extraordinary topic, I spoke with the brilliant Erica Jones, Curator of Navigation and Oceanography at Royal Museums Greenwich. Erica's work focuses not only on the Challenger expedition, but more broadly on 19th century science and the development of modern oceanography. 
As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoy talking with her. Here is the fascinating Erica. Erica, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Sam, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's talk about this wonderful expedition. Um, I've just been enjoying your book and I'm full of questions. So uh, what for those of our audience who don't know what it is, can you please tell us what the Challenger expedition was? Well, the Challenger expedition was named after the Royal Naval ship HMS Challenger. It was a collaboration between the Royal Society and the Royal Navy, and they went around the world from 1872 to 1876. It was a three and a half year voyage and they were charged with studying the nature of the deep sea. So they did loads of experiments and they came back with tons of specimens and data and information. And then the next thing they did was really phenomenal. And that was to put the results into the Challenger Report. That's 50 volumes and it's considered the foundation of oceanography today. 50 volumes. That's quite extraordinary. Have you seen the the original ones? Yes, there are approximately 750 sets in existence. I've seen quite a few. You can find them in the major libraries of the world. The National Maritime Museum has one volume of the deep sea deposits, which I'm rather obsessed with. Um, But yes, they're, they're beautifully illustrated and a really phenomenal piece of work. Yeah. Remind me what year it was that this happened? So the voyage was from 1872 to 1876. But then they came back to Edinburgh, where they continued their studies. And so they started publishing in 1880, but they didn't finish publishing all of those volumes, which were in a serialized format until 1895. So it was really a decades long project. Why then? Classic historical question. Why did someone suddenly pipe up and decide that the 1872 was the time to be doing this? Right, right time, right place. Uh, there were some um, really exciting scientific questions of the time. Scientists were interested in what existed in the bottom of the ocean. There were some ideas that Bathybius heckli, this type of creature, um, was a bit not quite like a fungus, but it was thought to be perhaps even the origin of all life on Earth, this kind of quasi-being between living and inorganic matter that could be at the bottom of the ocean. Um, But then there was also these more practical questions that the Hydrographic Office and the British government, they really wanted to study the bottom of the ocean for the laying of telegraph cables. So there were practical questions and also lots of different scientific interest in the ocean at that time. Yeah. And I suppose whenever we talk about um, the British government and things like communication, then there are there are hidden reasons for that. I mean, this must all be linked with empire, with military expansion, with um, with wanting to be able to control what's happening all over the world. Is that true? Yes. Well summarised. So at that time, London uh, was stretching out the telegraph cables. They had stretched across a the Atlantic at that point, the first successful long-term telegraph cable to the Atlantic was 1866. But even then, they didn't really know much about the bottom of the ocean. And in order to keep expanding that telegraph cable to London and to the Royal Navy um, bases and also the major ports of the world for commercial reasons, they really need to know more about the ocean for laying of telegraph cables connecting London with these major parts of the empire. 
I presume that when you haul up a deep sea telegraph cable, I've never done this, that it, there's all sorts of weird stuff attached to it. And I wonder whether the laying of the cables really inspired them to try and find out more about what was going on, just because on a day-to-day basis they were sort of seeing evidence of what was happening in the bottom of the ocean. Well, you'd be surprised. I mean, I've read some of the accounts of hauling up these cables, and it was phenomenal that they could do that. They're out there on a steamship, they're trawling, trying to catch the cable and then bring it up without sinking the ship. And so it was really hard, demanding work. Um, The cables themselves didn't bring up much evidence, except until it did. There was some coral that had seemingly attached itself to one of the cables. And that was in the mid-1860s. And that really, again, sparked debate hey, maybe these deep-sea corals are living in the ocean. But it wasn't to be confirmed until later. Mm. Whose idea was this? For the Challenger expedition. Well, it's hard to really give one person credit, but I would say there was two people who really got it going. And one is William Carpenter. He wasn't on the voyage, but he was the vice president of the Royal Society at the time. And he was very politically connected in government, also um, on very close terms with the Admiralty. So he was able to tell his idea of this great circumnavigation expedition to the hydrographer of the Navy, which was uh, George Richards at the time. And so you had George Richards, the hydrographer, talking with William Carpenter of the Royal Society. And they're the ones who really got this ball rolling. Mm. Well, let's talk about the... the ambition and the the scope of the project regardless of what actually happened what did they want to happen first well because i really like this and i I just wanted to get this right it was because they had three overarching aims for the voyage and so they set out in their sort of manifesto before they left by the royal society that they were going to study the chemistry and physics of the ocean and that was like water sampling taking temperature measurements and depths of the ocean and the second was the nature of deep sea deposits. And that's when they're looking at the geology of the ocean. And the third, and this is what I really like, is the they were looking for the distribution of marine life around the globe. And that is about the most ambitious undertaking I can possibly think of. So they'd set out not only to study the nature of the deep sea bottom, but also the distribution of life around the planet and the oceans. And so I'd say, yeah, their ambitions had no bounds and they went out um, doing their best and they came back with specimens and data on an unprecedented scale. And I think that was really at the heart of why Challenger was so successful. Yeah, when you read your your book, it, it, for me, it was almost inconceivable what they what they tried to do, and um, and these people knew, I suppose, more than anyone else, the scale of what they were trying to achieve, and yet they still went ahead with it rather than going. Actually, do you know what? I think this is a bit much for us. Let's start with with like the English Channel or something. They just decided to do all of it. That's correct. And also, that was a very Victorian thing to do and very much of in the nature of expeditions of this time period. And that's also what set Challenger apart, because other voyages had studied places like the Mediterranean or the North Atlantic on porcupine or lightning. But right to go around the globe doing this techniques, that's what set it apart. 
and connecting it back to the British Empire. The only reason they were able to do this was because of the resources of the Royal Navy and the English colonies at that time, the British Empire. And so just a quick example, thinking about when they went visited the Royal Navy base at Sydney, they were able to get provisions and supplies for the next six months of their voyage. They would refuel with coal, about 280 tons of coal to keep up their scientific experiments using steam power. They would uh, recruit more men if needed. And so around the world on their voyage, they would stop at these very key Royal Navy bases. And that really enabled them to do this worldwide voyage. Mm. So how did they do it? Which part? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's start with the ship. Let's talk about Challenger. HMS Challenger. Well, I feel like that's a character of the story that um, I love to talk about. It was built in 1858 during the transition from sail to steam. And so it had a full set of sails, which they used for most of the voyage, but it also had a two-trunk steam engine and a propeller. And that's what really enabled it to do oceanographic work because they needed to stay as still as possible in the water while they were sounding and trawling. Um, So that's part of its success. But then what One of the amazing things in the history of oceanography was the transformation that the ship underwent before the voyage. Well, they converted her into a a sort of floating laboratory. (laughs) Yes, that's one way to put it. Um, In Sheerness, it went under months of refitting. And on the main deck, they took out 18 of the cannons. And in in its place, they put in a natural history laboratory, also a chemistry lab. And so, yeah, the smells must have been terrible on the main deck for sure. And uh, But they also had a, a, a photography room. So they had an official photographer on deck and that's where they, he was producing photographs. So they converted spaces which had been used for military aims and it really gave the scientists a place to work on the ship. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Yeah, um, the, the ship plans are amazing. So once it's converted, they, they create plans or perhaps they're, they're, those are plans created for the conversion. I'm not sure. Do you could tell us about the, the, the surviving ship plans because they're at the National Maritime Museum. And I should say that we'll get these on uh, social media and uh, and we'll make a little video, put it on YouTube. So if you're listening to this podcast, please do um, find out what we're talking about. We will make it accessible. So, Erica, tell me about the ship plans. The ship plans are gorgeous. They're very large. They're about... Um, say a meter and a half long and they give a detailed sort of bird's eye view of what the ship looked like. I think that they were um, done in a rough sketch, I'm guessing during the conversion, but done in a final form afterwards and signed off. But from there, we can get some really gorgeous details of what the ship looked like. And there were so many little innovations that they did in order to convert the ship. For instance, they needed a place to keep these specimens um, preserved during the voyage. And so they converted the place where they had been storing gunpowder. That became a place for specimens and to keep alcohol because they used thousands of gallons of alcohol during the voyage in order to preserve the natural history specimens before they got back to Edinburgh. Mm. Where did they put all the specimens when they came back? Well, they were shipped to Edinburgh through different tracks around the world. And that's another part of the hidden story is that... Oh, so they didn't put them all on the ship and then wait for the Challenger to get home. They were sending them back as they went. Yes, very good observation because this was one of the key parts and innovations of Challenger was that they were preserving the specimens on board, but then at major ports of call, they were sending them back to London in batches. They sent around 600 cases of specimens back to Edinburgh, and they did this through the Royal Mail, through steamships, and even things like the Transcontinental Railroad across the United States, which had only Mm. been opened a few years earlier in 1869. So it was really this moment in history when goods and people were moving around the world faster than ever before. It was like the FedEx system of its day. And so imagine you've got the specimen that it's going to rot unless it gets back to where it needs to go very quickly. And so they really utilized this global system of transportation to get specimens from the ship back to Edinburgh very quickly. Yeah. So there's a there's an entire team waiting for these wonderful parcels to arrive. That must have been very exciting for them going about their day to day business. And then suddenly something arrives from the bottom of the Pacific a note that no one's ever seen before. Yes. Uh, the director of the expedition, Charles Wyville Thompson, he was very clever in that he picked someone he could trust to take care of these parcels at the University of Edinburgh and make sure they were OK. Previous voyages hadn't done so, and there were some tales of the United States exploring expedition. They sent their parcels back to Washington, D.C., where they were opened by a curious observer who then mixed up all their specimens and lost all the labels. (laughs) So Charles Weibel Thompson, he knew of these things happening and was trying to avoid these kind of mistakes. Yeah, that's a big mistake. Um, what, <laughs> what route did they take? Well, they spent quite a lot of time in the Atlantic, to be fair. So they started off in the North Atlantic, and this is when they were really testing their gear and also doing a lot of studying in the North Atlantic. And then they went south, and they went as far south as to cross the Antarctic Circle. 
They took the very first photographs of icebergs, and then they headed east to Australia. Then they made their way through the Pacific, um, spending quite a lot of time there. And then they decided not to go towards the west coast of North America. So then they went south, going past Hawaii and Tahiti. And finally, rounding the tip of South America, they then came back up through the Atlantic and finished their voyage there. I thought it was fascinating that they weren't just looking at uh, inanimate uh, objects dredged up from the bottom of the sea, but they were also talking to indigenous peoples as they went, um, finding out about local knowledge. Yes, everywhere they went, they were really aided by local knowledge. And I think a really good example is in the Philippines, when they were looking for this very rare type of glass sponge called Euptelectia, mm -hmm. and also known as a Venus flower basket. And so this was a really rare specimen that they were trying to find. And it was only known to live in this one place in the world in the Philippines. So the local fishermen from the island of Cebu showed the scientists where they could find this delicate sponge. But not only that, they actually helped them acquire it by using a special type of dredge. Now, the Challenger scientists had tried to use their dredge, which was made out of heavy iron, and it just crushed and mangled these fragile forms. But the Cebu fishermen, they used their dredge, which was made out of bamboo, is very lightweight, and was able just to gently pull the glass sponges from the bottom of the ocean. So just one example of how indigenous people were giving, uh, contributing to the voyage. Yeah. Who paid for all of this? The British government. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> and who was on board the ship? Was it men and women or was it all men? It was all men as far as I know, except when they were in port. And this was a time when they would often open the ship up to visitors and they would have dignitaries come on board mm. and sometimes the general public they even had dances and inviting people to dinner. And so the public would come on board and they were given a tour of some of these amazing scientific findings. And then they would also take dignitaries on, say, dredging trips in the harbor. And I know that women attended these. Women were actually very active in natural history and marine science at that time and going on dredging voyages at that time. Yeah. Um I was flicking through the book, and one of my favourite pictures is um, is this. It is a section of a manganese nodule from 2,350 fathoms in the South Pacific. Uh, it's, it's, it is a wonderful abstract image, it, it looks like to me, and I'm going to make sure that we post these on social media. Um, what was your... You must have come across a, a, an enormous amount of quite extraordinary illustrations. Did any particularly uh, come to mind as uh, as your favourites? I think that one is actually oh. <laughs> one of my favourites. And I can even tell you the very first time I saw it. <laughs> I was a PhD student uh, and I was studying at UCL and with the National Maritime Museum. And it was the very first time I saw the volume on the Challenger Report on Deep Sea Deposits. And I was flicking through it, had no idea what it was about. And I just saw that image and it just led to so many questions. 
What are they trying to show here? What is going on here? How did they make that image? And it's just so beautiful, like this kaleidoscope of colour. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, it's a circle. So it's on a black background, but you've got a circular thing that looks like, uh, well, it, it, it's like the moon if the moon was coloured in with lots of green and brown bits. Is that fair enough? <laughs> <laughs> that is fair, yeah. And just the... The different colors they're using and so part of my study was looking at how did they make this image and then also how did they print this image it was all very elaborate process it's actually a thin very thin slice of rock that's being illuminated by polarized light and then looked at from a microscope so it's an enlarged image it's a very thin slice of rock mm. yeah they're absolutely wonderful I'm just looking at some coloured ones here as well. Um, the, these are the, the, the slightly reddy, orangey ones. What are those? These are showing the, the inner composition of manganese nodules. And the reason why the colour was so important is that petrographers such as Alphonse Renard, they were discovering the composition of rocks by looking at the colors that they showed under polarized light. And so in order to show their scientific results, that's why these had to be printed in color so that other scientists could see what they had found. And the printing process was very complex. Each color needed a different separate plate. So some of these images took you know, maybe 20, 30 different plates each had to be applied onto the paper. Mm. Uh, let's talk about uh, briefly about how they actually managed to raise things up. There's a wonderful quote here saying, studying the depths of the sea is like hovering in a balloon high above an unknown land, which is hidden by clouds. Um, how did they physically raise things up from the seabed? Oh, I love that quote. And I think it really demonstrates how difficult it was, right? Trying to explore the deep sea. So what they would do is they would throw the dredge overboard and it was attached to a very long line of rope. So this is very thick hemp rope, the thickest rope that the Navy could make, about two and a half inches in diameter. And they would dredge, pulling the dredge behind them. It would take hours. They would start about 6 a.m. and probably not finish till just about dinner, about 6 p.m., and then they would raise it up and with using a what they called a donkey engine on deck. And this was a, a small steam-powered engine on deck. Mm. Well, it's all fascinating stuff and a, and a remarkable achievement. Um, why, does, why does this all matter? <laughs> well, Challenger did quite a lot of amazing things in one project. Not only did they bring together such a great deal of materials and specimens from around the globe, but it's what they did afterwards. And it was this international project, over 76 authors from many different countries coming together to create the Challenger Reports. And I think Challenger matters because the Challenger Report really helped galvanize the international community of scientists and was part of this movement, which they then called oceanography by the end of the 19th century. Mm. Yeah, well, it's fascinating stuff. And congratulations on, on all of your work. I think it's brilliant. And I'm sure there's more that's going to come out of this. So, Erica, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Oh, thanks. Well, I've loved talking to you. Thanks.
Thank you all so much for listening to the podcast. Now, please make sure that this isn't the last thing you do to interact with us or with maritime history as a whole. Your first stop has to be the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube page. It's fantastic. My current favourite video being an animation of the mighty five-masted German ship Preussen, which sailed the world carrying cargo before ending her life on the bottom of the sea just off Dover. It's a great story and the animation which explains the complexities of Square Rig is fabulous. Please also remember that this podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation. So do please check out both of those fantastic institutions. The History and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation you can find at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk I'd encourage you to check out their latest project, Maritime Innovation in Miniature. And the Society for Nautical Research is at snr.org.uk where you can join up and get all the benefits of joining including our fabulous winter lecture series an annual meal on the gun decks of HMS Victory, online access to almost 4,000 articles of maritime history that we've been publishing for over a century. <laughs>